without our help, canines would die. We're literally saving canine lives. You're listening to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host and resident dog mom, Erin Scott. Not only can a dog be your best friend, but I believe a dog can be a healer, a teacher, and an inspiration. I can't wait to share with you stories of how the love of a dog is changing our lives and changing the world. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to episode 84 of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Erin Scott, and thank you so much for being here today. I wanted to start today's episode by letting you know some exciting personal news. If you haven't already seen the announcement on social media, we have a new family member at the Scott household. Her name is Nessie, and she's approximately two years old. She was in a local shelter over the summer and then was taken into a foster home. And it's kind of a long, crazy, interesting story. So my husband, Tim, and I are actually working on a special episode to tell you all about how Nessie joined our household. So make sure you're checking the podcast feed for when that will be released. Nessie is a very sweet, silly, adorable girl. She loves people. She loves attention. She makes all these silly, crazy little noises. She snorts and snores and grunts and groans while she's playing with toys. And she burps more than any dog I've ever seen. But you know me, I'm going to be working on her digestion and her health to make sure we can get that cleared up. We're taking it slow with our introductions to Nino. So they've just been doing some walks together and seeing each other through like a baby gate in the house. So they haven't really done a lot of like one-on-one time at all yet. With Nino being our older guy and her being so much younger and so much more full of energy and hyper and craziness, we want to make sure that we're, we're doing the right thing and setting everybody up for success. But I'll be sure to keep you posted on how that goes too. And if you haven't already joined my Aaron the Dog Mom email list, make sure that you do that because I share some extra things there that's like behind the scenes of the podcast and behind the scenes of our family, some things that maybe I don't want to necessarily put out on social media. So check the link in the show notes for that too. You know, one of the things that I really enjoy about getting to do this podcast is learning about all the different ways that dogs affect our lives and getting to talk to all different people whose lives have been impacted by dogs. So getting to talk to today's guest, Bob Bryant of the Mission Canine Rescue Organization was really exciting because I don't really know much about military working dogs. And I had a lot of questions. Like I didn't even know who was in charge of breeding these dogs or training these dogs. And while I typically think of the German Shepherd as being the common military working dog, it's actually the Belgian Malinois that is the most popular dog found in military and military contractor work. And then there's that whole issue of the military contractors. I had lots of questions about that, too. You know, it wasn't even until 2021, the whole Afghanistan troop withdrawal, 
where there was an outcry about dogs being left behind. And while the U.S. military said that they accounted for all of their dogs, it was actually military contractor dogs that had been left behind. And I feel very naive, right? Like, it never occurred to me that anybody would leave any dog behind. So you can imagine my surprise when I started doing some research on this and found that, oh yeah, during the Vietnam War, the U.S. military left behind over 5,000 dogs. They were either euthanized or just left. And this is where organizations like Mission Canine come into play. They have taken it upon themselves to be responsible for bringing home and adopting out retired working dogs that have given so much for our country. And I do just want to give a brief trigger warning that some of the conditions that we speak about regarding these dogs are kind of upsetting to hear about, but I think it's really important to understand the gravity of the situation. And it goes to explain just why Bob and the people at Mission Canine Rescue are so incredibly passionate about the work that they do. But it's definitely not all bad. Bob gives me some great laughs along the way, too. I can't wait for you to meet Bob Bryant. So we're here today with Bob Bryant from Mission Canine. Welcome, Bob. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much for having me on. It's great to meet you, and I'm excited to answer your questions today. I have a lot I want to dive into with you. So I always love starting off by asking about your background with pets and with dogs. Like, I am not somebody who grew up with any kind of pets. I didn't even know I liked dogs until I was 25, and it has changed my whole life. And so I'm always curious what that looks like for other people. Did you grow up with dogs? Yes, I did. I I always had some sort of a a pet growing up. I had my father uh, didn't think dogs should be inside the house. So we had an outside collie when I was a kid. And I must say he didn't get the attention that he deserved. I've had, uh, dogs and cats throughout my life and I love all of them, but I had never been, uh, associated with any type of working dogs until I became involved in this organization, which came about simply as a result of my talking to some larger groups on Facebook about uh, I wanted to share some revenue. I wanted to help them promote their mission. And my idea was if I got accounts from it, I would share revenue from the accounts. I get something, they get something. And my partners uh, now, partners now, they weren't partners then, they liked it. And we went forward and it worked, but then we needed to raise more. And their executive director of this former organization said, I'll never spend money on advertising. It's unethical. And I smiled at her and I said, takes money to makes money. You know, you got it. You got to do it. She wouldn't do it. Five months later, she had to get a quote unquote real job. And my partners didn't want to drop the organization. They called me, asked me to co-found Mission Canine Rescue. This was in the fall of 1973. And I didn't think twice about it. I said yes. And here we are almost, uh, well, 10 years later. We brought over 1,200 dogs home from every corner of the world. We've reunited 640 some odd with former handlers and spent hundreds of thousand dollars in veterinary bills over that time. I can imagine. <laughs> so were you in the military? No, I was not. I was, uh, I call myself a Vietnam gap baby. My lottery, <laughs> nu- my lottery number for the draft was 11. If there would have been another draft, uh, I would have gone in. 
However, there wasn't another draft. As a result, I did not serve. I will tell you this. If I could go back and do it again, I would have enlisted because I feel like the experience would be valuable. I know many members of our armed services. They're great people. And uh, I count myself worthy to uh, be their friend. And I think it would have been a, a positive move for me. But, you know, can't take it back. So here I am. <laughs> So, you know, I've been involved in the shelter and rescue world probably since about 2008. And it actually wasn't until the last couple years that I even was aware of this issue of, you know, military working dogs, contractor working dogs. It, I think the, the whole incident in Afghanistan a couple of years ago was what really brought this to my attention. So uh, how did the people who, who, weren't, who got involved in this, how did they even become aware of this problem that they're, you know, with these dogs, that there's no kind of retirement plan for them? Well, my partner, Kristen Maurer, back in 2009, when they started the former organization, realized that military dogs were being euthanized when they were placed out of service rather than automatically being returned to their handlers. There was a law passed called Robbie's Law, that stopped this. However, the military still did not just automatically uh, pair a dog with a former handler when the dog's career was over. A military working dog can have up to five handlers during its career, and the military itself decides which of those five gets the dog. Normally, uh, it's the last handler. Sometimes it can be the first handler. It just depends on the situation. There are many times a handler that's slated to get the dog can't take it because let's say the dog's bite trained, aggressive, and the handler has small children. Well, that just doesn't work. So they will have the dog go to another handler and then make arrangements to visit it. The issue has been for the past few years that even though uh, then President Obama signed a, a portion of the National Defense Authorization Act back in 2016, that within it included a clause for the military to return dogs retired overseas stateside. At the end of their tour, the military got around it by calling for an operating basis, United States soil. So that rocked along. And basically, servicemen, dog handlers would reach out to us, and they still do when their dog's coming up from retirement, or even the kennel masters saying, hey, you know, uh, Johnny, uh, you know, X-ray 214 is getting ready to retire. You know, can you help us get him back? We never say no. We brought dogs home from literally every corner of the world where the military has them. And we just, uh, there, and also we bring home contract working dogs, but back to the military, the military, we're now starting to see them actually put some dogs on rotator flights home with other military personnel. They brought us three dogs from Japan. They flew them into Seattle a couple of months ago. We still had to get them all the way across the country, but we didn't have to pay the cost to get them home from, uh, the Japanese, uh, territories. So that's been a good thing. Now, contract working dogs, they don't even get that much. Uh, a lot of times when a contract working dog is retired, they're stuck in a kennel, they're forgotten about, they're not fed well, they're not exercised. And we've literally seen some horror stories come home. Dogs that should weigh 70 pounds, weighing 35, and just, it's sad. But we work with the situation as we get them, and we try to do right by the dogs. It's interesting you had mentioned Vietnam because I had actually been been looking into like the history of military working dogs and actually saw that like during the Vietnam era, most of the dogs did not make it home. Five thousand didn't make it home. They were euthanized. 
and that they were basically considered equipment. And they still are. I guess like that was shocking when you think about like the time and the money investment that goes into the training of this, that that's how living beings are then treated. So at least we've made some progress a little. A little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. They still have no retirement care after retirement. In my opinion, a dog that serves our country for its working lifespan should have care for life from the military. They shouldn't have to, we shouldn't have to go begging the public to pay the vet bills for these brave dogs that served. I mean, I was looking at it again from a, a rescue perspective that what we see in the shelter world is generally individuals who are in a crisis situation. They've lost their job, they've lost their home, uh, there's some sort of behavioral issue that's beyond their, you know, ability to deal with things like this. But I was like, this is like institutionalized lack of accountability and lack of planning. And, and that was just kind of shocking for me to think about. Understood. Yeah, the military is a kind of a quandary in my mind. It's sometimes so why they do some things, but they don't do others. To me, the dogs deserve no less care when they're retired than the soldiers do. They need their own equivalent of VA benefits, of TRICARE, healthcare through whatever local veterinarian. After all, they've earned it. Absolutely. So I wanted to talk about the military, start with the military working dogs. Okay. I don't really know too much about this. Uh, are these dogs that are specifically bred by the military? Are there people who breed that the military recruits from? Do you know how any of this works? Yes, I know how all of it works. Uh, military working dogs are controlled and operated by the Lackland Joint Task Forces Military Working Dog Program in San Antonio, Texas. They have breeders that breed these dogs. They then have a puppy program where individuals take the puppies when they're weaned from their moms and they give them just basic training at home. And then when they're of a certain age, I'm not sure how many months, they then go to the actual working dog uh, headquarters where they're kenneled and then they're trained on all aspects of their work, whether it's uh, patrol and apprehension, explosive detection, drug detection, or in most cases, dogs that go overseas, they are combination patrol, which means they're bike trained and explosive detection dogs, also known as EDD. So that's how that works. And then after the dogs are trained, they are paired with a the handler. They are trained with the handler and then they are deployed to whatever uh, branch of the service, you know, they, they need to go to. And I'm imagining these are mostly the shepherdy Malinois kind of dogs. Well, the Belgian the Belgian Malinois is the primary dog the United States military uses uh, okay. more than the German Shepherd these days because shepherds are not as good in the heat. They have hip issues from time to time. Uh, Malinois can jump higher. They can run faster. People literally call them fur missiles. <laughs> uh, we still see some Labrador retrievers used by the military for bomb dogs. And uh, well, some of the smallest dogs we've seen the military use, I've seen a Jack Russell Terrier that was trained for explosive detection that searched submarines. So, you know, there's all a, spaces, there's a, I'd imagine, right? Yeah. Yeah. When the Jack comes on board, the sailors get nervous. <laughs> so, you know, we're recording this, uh, uh, I think, the week after there was that big incident in Pennsylvania. Of course, I'm in Maryland, so I was paying attention to this, where this prisoner had escaped uh, from a prison. Oh. Oh, yeah, the Brazilian dude. Yeah. yeah. 
and uh, Cabo, it was Cabo all, Conte or whatever his name is. Yeah. So it was all over the news here because I'm not too far from the Pennsylvania line where I live. And it was a Malinois that, you know, had, had uh, apprehended uh, this gentleman. Correct. And, uh, you know, people get worried in the dog community when they see a Malinois, for instance, getting a lot of press that it's going to drive demand for the public by these types of dogs. Um, that That's always concerning for me because they are such high drive dogs. Can you explain like the difference between kind of like your family dog versus these like high drive working dogs? Sure. Let's just say this way. You are a Labrador retriever. You own crack or a Belgian Malinois. <laughs> they are, they have endless energy. They must be constantly stimulated. If you have a Malinois and you keep them at home and you just leave them for hours and hours, they're going to eat your furniture. So you have to you have to really have the time to dedicate to spend with a mal or any working dog for that matter. I've got a big German Shepherd sleeping down on the floor down here. He's a retired police canine, and uh, while he's just seven years old, uh, if I don't entertain him at least three miles a day, he drives me crazy because he he wants to go, he wants to do, and he's fine laying here chilling for a while. But after a while, he's going to be in my face sticking a toy you know, wherever wanting me to engage with him. Yeah, I, I see this uh, even just around where I live. There's a big thing with people getting like farm dogs that are German shepherds. And then they buy them as puppies and stick them in their basement all day while they're at work and then wonder why there's all these, you know, behavioral issues or anxieties or they develop these, you know, weird habits or they're yeah, destroying the sofa and eating the basement wall. And, you know, <laughs> we have we have two or three requests a week to take Malinois or shepherds from individuals because, you know, they just can't handle the dog. And unfortunately, we're not chartered to take pets. So we have to say no. And it breaks my heart. But, uh, you know, we ask that the public be aware of the nature of the animal they're wanting to get before they get it and find what a mistake it was. Exactly. A lot of people seems have to learn the hard way I've seen. <laughs> also, the police departments need to have a plan in place for their dogs when they retire. I can't tell you how many requests we get to take in Belgian Malinois that have bite records. And we, we're not a sanctuary. We, we take our dogs in, we adopt them out. We're not keeping the lifers. And I can't have a dog that's got four bite records. You know, we can't adopt that dog out. So the departments need to step up and be responsible for the outcome of their dogs in retirement rather than euthanize them or dump them in some cases. Yeah, th this has just been fascinating for me to to realize how much of an issue this is and how common an issue. And obviously, you're seeing it constantly. Every week, a couple times a week, maybe four times a week. That's shocking to me. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk some more about the contractor working dogs. Okay. So I'm thinking of, and I'll also admit, I'm a little cynical with these things of, you know, things like... Uh, it was a while ago now, but like the company called Blackwater that used to be in the news. I think they've changed their names a bunch of times. No, they they're still they're 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 still Blackwater. Yeah, I know. Um, and you know, like these sort of like private military contractors, which in my mind, it's always a little, I don't know, sketchy or something. Can't and be. Um, so, what are what kind of functions are dogs performing in the military contractor kind of environment? 
All right, let's just let's break it down and just uh, contract working dogs in general are used in many cases by companies overseas. They hire foreign nationals to handle them. And these dogs are doing work at airports. They're doing works at ports. They're checking for explosives. They're looking for drugs. In the case of Afghanistan, some of them are actually attached to our military. And when the military says, or when Joe Biden says, no military dogs are left in Afghanistan, there weren't any military dogs left, but there sure were some contract working dogs left. And because we brought home six of them in just the last uh, couple of months and they're over there, the Taliban is using them. And we have a rescuer over there that has gotten the Taliban comfortable enough that when the dogs cease to be an asset to them, rather than kill them, they give them to her. And then she gets with us and then we work out a way to get them from Afghanistan, generally through New Delhi, uh, India, back to the United States. Yeah, I was going to ask if you were actually involved in the like physical coordination of getting dogs oh, yeah. out of other parts of the world. Well, 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 I'm not directly. My partners are, so I know I know the procedure. No, there are health certifications required. Uh, there's waiting periods in some cases. Uh, the United States blanketly blacklisted a group of let's just call them the hot countries uh, because of a rabies scare. And we had to really uh, do some magic to work around that to get them back in the country. We had to take them to a neutral country for a time, board them, and then bring them back from there. I, the logistics of this are blowing my mind. I couldn't even imagine how you'd begin you know, to work with all this. The, ex- the expense of it will also blow your mind. <laughs> to, to, to get a dog back from Afghanistan costs about $6,000. Wow. Wow. So... Yeah. Can you fill us in a little more on just what you know about that whole situation with Afghanistan in 2021? Because like I said, this was kind of the first time it it ever like occurred to me that, that the responsible thing wasn't just automatically being done. Well, the withdrawal itself, the troop withdrawal, in my opinion, was an absolute cluster. You know what? And we're just going to leave it at that. Uh, it was poorly coordinated in my opinion. I'm not in the military, so my opinion really doesn't matter. But when they say that no dogs were left behind, they meant no military dogs. They did leave these contract working dogs behind. Some of them were owned by Canadian contractors, but it really doesn't matter. They were all there doing the same thing, and we were determined to help to get them home when we could. As a dog lover, right, it's hard for me to even wrap my head around the fact that somebody's not properly caring for a dog. I mean, is it just looked at as like, I don't know, like an expense, like they've outlived their usefulness, so we don't... Yes. When dogs, when, when dogs lose their work drive, they're, not, they're no longer a benefit and so, to the company. They, if they don't work, they're not going to you know, be able to make any money. So the easiest thing to do is just put the, gar- put the dog aside and get another dog. And sometimes the dog that's put aside doesn't get enough exercise. They don't get out of the kennel. They don't get good food. There's insect infestations. They have diseases as a result of it. They get uh, panis from uh, having their eyes constantly exposed to the bleach that they use to clean the kennels every day. It's kind of sad, the treatment that they receive. Yeah, it's I mean, it's, I keep saying shocking, but it's just been it's been blowing my mind that that how this goes on. So, mm-hmm. is it just through like 
good Samaritans that your organization would even find out about dogs in need like this? Well, uh, we, again, we're very well connected with the working dog world after having been in this since my partner's been in it since 2009. I've been in it since 2013. So we have a lot, most of, most of the contract companies know about us. And one of them, uh, this was back in 2015, a group of them were not uh, paid by their employers over there. And as a result, they euthanized a pile of dogs and posed in front of them. And we were determined to get the rest of the dogs back. So while we didn't make friends with these ingrates, we told them, if you'll give us the rest of the dogs, we'll get you out of a very bad PR situation. And they agreed to do so. Those dogs came from Kuwait. If you search for the Petco Helping Heroes Award in 2017, you'll see us talking about that in that video that they made from us. Um, it's, 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 It's just a sad situation overall. So with the dogs that come through military contractors, where are those dogs being bred and trained? Generally, they're being uh, a, lo- a lot of them are purchased from overseas. For instance, a lot of police departments uh, will purchase from Slovakia or uh, Czechoslovakia, some of the or some of the countries overseas because they specifically breed canines. A lot of the contract companies also buy their dogs from overseas. However, some of them are trained in Alabama. Some of them are trained in bred in Florida. Just depends. There's some good contractors and there's some horrible contractors. Some good contractors are people like AM Canine. They do, you know, the right work. Uh, K2 Solutions is another. They're in LRB, North Carolina. They do a great job and they do well for their dogs. I've been to their facilities. It's mainly the contractors that are overseas where they're handling, you know, where dogs are sent there and they're handled by foreign nationals that they don't get the care and appreciation that they deserve. And we wind up with the kind of horror stories that we don't want to see. Once these dogs get to you through whatever way, then what happens? I understand that you guys have a ranch facility. Correct. We have a four acre facility in Magnolia, Texas, where we take in working dogs. We will uh, evaluate them for any veterinary needs. When they come in, any health care they need, they will receive it. No questions asked. There's not a, well, we can't afford it. You know, we'll find a way to afford it. We, uh, we work with them to determine their psychological behavior, whether they're friendly with other dogs or not, whether they're a one-person dog or friendly with everybody. And then, then once that's established, we will find suitable adopters to adopt the dogs. Are there any common physical conditions? Like, is it dog, you know, like, do you see dogs that blow out their CCL or have like a hip oh, yeah. dysplasia? Or, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Common? We see most older dogs, shepherds and mouths, have some sort of arthritis in their hips. They can have uh, gross. They can have, we see a lot of cancer, unfortunately, especially in explosive detection dogs, just from the items that, that they work around. And I would say one out of every five dogs winds up with some sort of cancer, aggressive or not. What about the mental, emotional, you know, PTSD, for lack of a better term, uh, type things? Do you, how many dogs are you seeing with that? About 60% of the dogs that come in have some sort of PTSD from stress of either explosions or gunfire, or in the case of contract working dogs from mistreatment by handlers. 
we had an old dog named Anubis that came to our family. He was a Belgian Malinois, and he didn't like to let his toy go. And when the dog works, he finds something, you give him the toy. Well, if the dog won't release it, the dog won't work. So how do you get it out? Well, in this case, they beat him or they choked him. And he was terrified of males. In the four years he lived when we adopted him, I can honestly tell you that dog never, ever really wanted to have anything to do with me. But he bonded to my wife like a tick. We had it was so he had separation anxiety so bad that I had to find a mannequin that was about her size that I dressed up in her dirty clothes that and put it on the couch and put a blanket on it, head on the pillow. And he thought that was her sleeping and she could leave the house that way. And he would obsess sitting there. He didn't figure it out for about three months. It really wasn't her. Wow. So she so she got a lot of break. In time. <laughs> wow. Yeah, we faked him out. <laughs> I was going to ask what. What does PTSD, the type that you're seeing in dogs, look like? Like, how is this manifesting in their behavior? Uh, I see a lot of fear. I see a lot of trembling. Uh, for instance, uh, loud noises. You'll see dogs just physically just just shake. That they'll they'll withdraw. Some PTSD can cause them to become aggressive, especially in their crates if they're crated for some reason. Um, there can be that kind of aggression. It, it it just depends. And a lot of people say, well, how do you fix PTSD? The answer is you don't. You just learn to work around it, recognize the triggers, and try not to give that type of trigger to cause the dog to react with that response. Yeah, I was going to ask, how do you even start working with them? Is it just uh, kind of a trial and error of like we just we have to we have we have to get to know their personalities. Obviously, we have people that are qualified handlers down down on our ranch, and it doesn't take long to know which dog's going to need extra and which dog's fine. Just literally, I can spend an hour with a dog, and I can tell you a lot about that dog just after an hour. Yeah, how do you teach a former working dog? To dog, <laughs> to you know, be a couch potato. <laughs> you you don't. That's why you. They have to go to a home that's going to keep them busy. While canine Navy here, his name is Navy. They called him Demon when he was in Czechoslovakia. The Canadian police didn't like that, so they changed his name to Navy. Uh, he still works all the time for fun. I take him out to parks. He finds tennis balls. He finds lacrosse balls. He occasionally finds a crack pipe or two and is very proud and is very proud of that. He's found marijuana. Sounds like Baltimore. He's found heroin. Yeah, well, I physically live in Southern California, just in Ventura County, just north of Los Angeles. I float back and forth between here and our base in Texas. So obviously we have a bit more of that out here, just like Baltimore. (laughs) So at any given time, how many dogs will be at the ranch? We have uh, a, a cap at 50. Uh, I would like to see that to 25 because it's much easier for us to serve 25 dogs than it is to serve 50. And we start getting into capacity issues. Uh, we've had a couple of rescues uh, dealing with Malinois and working dogs over the past two months that have been cited for neglect, uh, filth, uh, disease. One of them in particular, there were like 20 dogs, Malinois living in horrid conditions. And one of our friends that's a rescuer went and, went, went and got them. It's, it's just sad to see what can happen when rescues take just one more dog. One more dog at a certain point can cause a mental crisis. 
I, we need to be at 25 dogs. We need to stay there. It's tough, even though we do wonderful work and over 90% of donations go directly to that work. It's like pulling teeth to get help for dogs that need health care. Everybody wants to see them come home and be reunited with their handler. Uh, I'll never have a tr- have trouble fundraising for that. But God help me, if a dog needs a hip replacement, oh, well, you should just euthanize that dog. No, you know, we've seen dogs live four years with hip replacements. Happy lives. We're not going to euthanize them. We, we, would only, uh, we would only euthanize a dog if it had incurable terminal cancer and the dog was in constant pain. Other than that, you know, that's not something that's ever on our plate. But we want to do right whatever it is by the dogs in our care. What about, are there dogs that are like extreme behavioral issues that it's unsafe, you know, to be around? Generally, we will not, uh, uh, we've run into that. We will generally not adopt dogs that are, uh, or not take in dogs that are bite risks. We have to be able to adopt them in the public. And as much as it sounds crass, sometimes that needs to be the person's problem that bred the dogs, that owns the dogs because we can't keep them for, for life. And uh, it's, it's just a sad situation when we have to say no because of excess bike records. Right. Is that definitely something that you consider? Like, do you, are people upfront about that? <laughs> uh, well, well, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Uh, we've had a few liars, obviously, but most of them are, are honest about it. On our form, does the dog have any bites, you know? List is, you know, we 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 want to know, and we're going to find out one way or another. So, if you're adopting out to the public, I imagine there's a lot of screening, and it's not just any any Joe Blow public that, that uh, is a suitable adopter for your dogs. That's correct. We have an adoption process. We have a coordinator that does our applications. Her name is Blair Baker, super young lady, and. Uh, we have an application that the main thing we want from an adopter is that they have the ability to handle a dog. They have the room in the home for the dog. They don't have 20 other pets because most of the dogs aren't dog or cat friendly. Now, I'm lucky. My dog likes the cats, so I don't have a problem there, but other dogs would kill the cats. But the main thing, they two main things. They have to have the time to spend to engage and exercise the working dog. And most important, they have to have the money to provide veterinary care and the senior care the dogs have to have. No money for vet care, no dog. Yeah, I mean, I'd imagine most of the dogs that you're adopting out are considered senior dogs. They are. most of. They're all usually eight or older. You know, we occasionally get some younger than that that are washed out or had a little injury, something like that. But yeah, eight, nine years old is when the military starts retiring dogs. So I would imagine that it would be helpful for people who want to adopt these dogs to like have some familiarity with either like working dogs or, you know, I'm I'm thinking like of dog sports or things like that, that you could still keep them engaged in. Sure. Yes, we uh, most of them, they're not going to be able to do the dog sports. They, they can't do Schutzen because it's uh, a little bit rough on their bodies at nine years old if they're doing bite work and things like that. Uh, we do encourage them to keep them busy. Uh, we have a guy named Vance whose working dog, Icar, went back to him a few years ago. Vance taught Icar how to find elk antlers by scent. 
Oh. And so he and so Icar finds elk antler sheds <laughs> up in the woods of uh, uh, Montana. A pair of elk antler sheds goes for about eight hundred bucks. Wow, I uh, I'm a pit bull, uh, a rescue pit bull person. Being in Baltimore, that's where the big need is. I can I can tell you a pit bull story. Oh, please do. Back during the uh, drawdown in Iraq, there was a program started by the United States Army to find and remove roadside bombs called the TED program. It was the Tactical Explosive Detection Dogs program. That's what TED stands for. There's always an acronym. (laughs) And as a part of that, they went to shelters and they pulled dogs that were suitable for nose work. Well, in one in this one case, they found Howard. Howard was an American Staffordshire Terrier, aka Pitbull, and Howard was a bomb dog. And Howard was uh, was dumped with about fourteen other working dogs in a kennel in Chesterfield, uh, Virginia, back I think it was around 2018, from uh, by the by the army, and they just left them, and they racked up like a forty thousand dollar bill with this kennel. And this guy reaches out, hey, I got all these dogs. And bottom line is we raised the money, we paid the bill, we brought the dogs, and we, we were able to reunite Howard with his handler. So uh, it was pretty cool to see a pit bull actually doing nose work. Yeah, I love hearing those stories. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I I haven't spent a ton of time around any kind of working dogs. I did know somebody that did some schutzend with their pit bull, but that was a while ago. But uh, I had the opportunity uh, a couple years ago to spend some time with an organization that does sport search and rescue. Mm -hmm. And they're based here in the mid-Atlantic. And I guess what was so um, surprising to me, I guess, was how fast they worked. And, you know, they would have volunteers hide in the woods or, you know, they would do... uh, like man trailing and tracking things. And I was blown away by just, I mean, a lot of times they were finding the person in under a minute and even, you know, in like 40 seconds. And and I was just, I was so surprised uh, just at how quickly, like it's really a thing of beauty to see them putting like all of their dog qualities that they've been bred for to use like that and how fast it moves. Supposedly, if a Labrador retriever could talk, they could tell you what you had for breakfast two days ago just by a sniff. <laughs> So, like when you do games with your dog, like are, are they just super fast on 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 picking these things up? Oh yeah, I mean if if there's a tennis ball that it hits his nose, boom, he's gone. He knows where it is. Or same thing. My old uh, my old bomb dog Oreo was a black lab, served during uh, Operation Enduring Freedom in Iraq. He loved lacrosse balls. He would find them buried in the parks. He found over three hundred in the time <laughs> in, in the time I had them. He'd be going, going, going. All of a sudden, down would go the nose, and he'd start to dig. Pop! Up comes the ball. <laughs> I just, I love seeing that at, at work. It's really a thing of beauty. Mm-hmm. So, how can the public help with Mission Canine? Two things: the more people that know about us, the more funding we're going to get. Obviously, the nature of a nonprofit is to have its hand stuck out, wanting, wanting money. And I've already mentioned that. Out of a dollar ninety to ninety three cents goes to the work, so we're not wasting anybody's donation. We're also not taking their money and giving it to a marketing company to email old ladies that may have died two years ago to beg for money. 
Uh, to me, it's just not an ethical use of donor funds. If you if you give me a hundred dollars and you say this is for Jim's, you know, dental cleaning, you know, this Saturday, and I take that money and I give it to a marketing company, you're not going to be real happy with me. We have a lot of we have a lot to do that, and they just oh what great work we're doing, but you know they don't help hardly any dogs. Yet they're sitting on two million dollars in the bank, and we're out there busting our butts doing the work. And we have to beg for every dime that we get. It's uh, there's some, I don't know, there's some ethical issues in the nonprofit world that I have issues with with people that spend money to do marketing. Also, the various marketing sites like Charity Navigator, uh, we used to be four stars. Now they put us at two stars. Saying, well, why do you only have two stars? You must treat the dogs bad. No, the reason we only have two stars is because we do 1.6 to 1.8 million dollars a year, and we haven't decided to spend $60,000 of donor funds to get an audit. Again, what should we do with the $60,000 our donors give us? Should we spend it on an audit to get two more stars with Charity Navigator, or should we do our work with it? To us, there's no question. We do our work with it. Yeah, I I definitely can understand. uh, I can definitely understand where you're coming from with a lot of this. Yeah, it's true. And it's uh, the, the nonprofit world is very, uh, it's a joyful world, and it's also a very frustrating world when it comes to getting money from the public. People can, uh, people could tell the public about us. We'd love that. Exposure is wonderful. Also, we always need money. There's never, there's never a month in which we can do all the work we need to do because there's too much month at the end of the money. And that's whether we're doing 10000 a year or $2 million a year. If I could, if I had three million a year, we could do everything we need to do, and we'd never have to worry again. But it, it was relatively simple to go from nothing to a million dollars in donations. But it's it's like pulling teeth to go from a million to two million. You know, it's a lot of extra work. But again, more exposure, more financial gifts to the organization, and programs like this help us. And I can't thank you enough for inviting me on to discuss our mission. I'm happy to have you. So what's the most rewarding part? Is it getting to see these uh, reunited with the handler? Uh, I saw a video on Facebook of that. Like what Mm -hmm. what keeps you going? Well, the handler reunions are awesome. And it's just knowing that without our help, uh, canines would die. We're literally saving canine lives with our work. That's what does it for me. From a legislative process, is there anything that we can do to help with uh, contacting lawmakers, or is there anything? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there is. Like, are there uh, any proposed bills currently, or, or there's not that I know of. Um, one thing we could do that would be a benefit to every dog that serves the United States military is to write our congressmen, write our senators, and say, "Hey." These dogs serve. They deserve benefits at the end of their service, just like United States soldiers do. You know, at a minimum, health care. You know, at a maximum, health care and nutrition, you know, for the people that adopt them. That way, we could adopt more people that maybe couldn't normally afford health care, but would take the dog in a heartbeat if the government was paying for it. So that's a, you know, that's my thought on that. 
What about from a local level with the law enforcement dogs? Is that something, is there a way for us to be paying attention to that in our own community? You could ask your departments what they do with their dogs and they're retired. If they go to their handler, great. If they don't, ask why, ask what happens to them, ask what they have in place for their dogs. Again, the police departments, when the dogs are retired, no medical, no health care, nothing. It's up to the handler. It's so, it's such a surprise to hear that. <laughs> it's it's sad. It's it saddened me to know that the dogs that give the most receive such little care for the work they've done. Absolutely. Well, I'm very grateful for your time today. And, you're welcome. Uh, and educating all of us on this. If your if your audience would like to learn more about our organization, uh, on Facebook we're listed as Mission, the letter K and the number nine, just Mission K nine. And our website, if they'd like to donate, is missionk9rescue.org. And again, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. I'll make sure we have links in the show notes. Thank you. Thanks. I keep thinking that if you were playing a drinking game where you had to take a shot for every time I used the word shocking during my conversation with Bob, you'd probably be really blitzed right now. But I really was just so shocked about what I kept learning and reading and hearing about. And even though I'm kind of on the cynical end of the spectrum when it comes to my expectations from the government or from the military, it still was just completely blowing my mind to learn about the retirement treatment or lack thereof of our military working dogs. I keep thinking that, you know, you'd think you'd see like VCA vet hospitals, which is one of the biggest chain vet hospitals in the country, or even like a Banfield vet hospital, that perhaps they would come up with some sort of publicity plan, right, where they would provide up to $5,000 of free veterinary care each year for retired military or military contractor working dogs. We should definitely want the military contractor dogs included in that also. Or, you know, have one of these programs at like a PetSmart or a Petco where, you know, you can donate an extra dollar that would go to caring for these dogs or something like that. And of course, make sure you check the links in the show notes if you'd like to donate to the efforts of Mission Canine in this season of giving. I always like to highlight the work of nonprofit organizations during this time of year because most nonprofit organizations raise at least 25% or one quarter of their budget for the year in the month of December with year-end giving. You know, I really appreciated Bob's take on the responsibility of nonprofit organizations and how they use their funding to support the work of the nonprofit versus the administrative overhead costs. As many of you know, I am president of a nonprofit organization here in Baltimore called Be More Dog. And we're just a tiny grassroots organization. We're all volunteers, so we don't have salaries or things like that to worry about. And it's been a decision that we've made over the years to keep things small and to keep things this way so that all the funding can go into supporting pets and their families. 
So I hope you will be participating in some year-end giving to support the animal nonprofit organizations around the country. I think that most people are aware, but I'm always happy to provide the reminder that even though many of your local organizations may have the terms SPCA or Humane Society in their name, that none of the local organizations are actually receiving any funding or help from the national organizations like the American SPCA or the Humane Society of the United States. I'm definitely someone who prefers focusing on local giving to make sure that funds are being used in the community in which I'm living in. Uh, But I also see the need to support organizations like Mission Canine also who are doing great work and are very upfront and transparent about how they use the money that's being raised. And I guess that's something that's really important to me. And I will take that time to look around and, and look these things up before I support an organization. And I just have to mention, I'll have a link in the show notes for you to the video that Bob was talking about when Mission Canine Rescue won the Petco Hero Award in 2017. And there's this video about it. And I mean, the video just about moved me to tears, Uh, but I think it's a really great illustration of their work. And I think you'll really appreciate watching it. So that'll do it for this episode of the Believe in Dog podcast. And just another reminder to join the Erin the Dog Mom email list that you can find at the link in the show notes. If you like this episode, remember that you can always leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's pretty much the biggest compliment that you can give a podcaster. You can always find me at Believe in Dog Podcast on Facebook or at Erin the Dog Mom on Instagram. So until next time, this is Erin Scott sending you hugs and belly rubs. Believe in Dog Podcast is a production of Hugs and Belly Rubs, LLC.